Hi, my name is Massimo Russo, and I'm a BCG Henderson Institute Fellow, studying how B2B companies are realizing value from the Internet of Things. You're listening to Inspiring the Next Game, a podcast series which offers new perspectives on business, technology, economics, and science by the BCG Henderson Institute. In our first season, we focus on the data economy and will speak with industry and academic leaders to explore the potential of cross-enterprise data sharing and the role of platforms and ecosystems in accelerating the data economy. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Professor Sandy Pentland, who's a professor at the MIT Media Lab and co-creator of the Media Lab. He is one of the most cited computational scientists in the world, and Forbes declared him one of the seven most powerful data scientists in the world. He's held numerous leadership positions internationally on topics of data use and data privacy. Most recently, he's been part of the OPAL project, a new distributed way of learning where instead of data centralizing around algorithms, algorithms are sent to the data. The goal is to unlock the potential of private data but in a privacy-conscious, scalable way. Well, Sandy, welcome, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. My um, pleasure. You've been looking quite a bit at data sharing and data aggregation and how it can unlock significant value in society. Can you say a bit more about the role of data sharing? Well, there's a couple of basic points. One is that we need to start treating data as a basic means of production, the same way we treat labor, and money, capital, because it's that important now. It's one of the things that make it go. And as uh, Piketty says, returns to capital are not bad, per se. It's just that it's in too few hands, which means it can't be priced. The conditions under which that data was obtained are something that people are beginning to seriously object to. Because, well, whose data really is that? It was co-created, but why do you have exclusive rights to it? Blah, blah, blah. So there's all these debates. Now, what I've been doing is I started the discussion actually with BCG as one of the partners in Davos around establishing basic ownership principles around data. It's something I called the New Deal on Data. And that evolved into GDPR and CPP and all those sort of things. Data sharing and aggregation can unlock a lot of value and use cases, but also lead to some challenges, which you're writing about in your upcoming book, Building the New Economy. Can you tell us a little bit more about these challenges? So GDPR, data ownership, that's sort of the first step in it, but that doesn't get you to a liquid data market. So what are you going to do? And plus, we now are seeing this just beginning of a wave of cyber attack. So we have to have an architecture that's very, very different. And the key thing here is, okay, well, so people have a right to a copy of their data. Okay, so there needs to be storage somewhere. It's a personal data store, but where are we going to put that, right? Okay, there's no place to put it. Nothing to do with it if you have it. There is another way to think about this, which is, is that I give permission to a company to have some data for some purpose. And I could also give them permission, or they could have permission, if it's only things that are aggregate, to answer questions about the pile of data that they have. So answering questions about things that are not personally identifiable is fine. What is Project OPAL? 
what are some of the advantages to distributed data, computation, and AI, and what are some of the disadvantages? And that comes to this open algorithms idea where what you do is you have a legal agreement, a trust agreement about a bunch of companies, and that trust agreement says, we will answer certain questions for you, and here's the economic burden. Now, our Opal architecture just was adopted by Fidelity and the 18 largest banks in the United States so that they don't have to be sending personal data around all the time. The next thing that happens with that is, is that digital identity, the know your customer stuff, is now done once for all the banks, for all the investment things. That's a huge savings and a huge increase in security. Data's not moving around. You get to have uniform sort of notions of identity. And the part that's really interesting is now you can audit things. So all these, you know, these questions and answers are, of course, encrypted. But I can look for this data-defined network and ask, is something wrong happening? So I can detect attacks almost instantly. And that's this open algorithm, it's OPAL. Okay? And what the book, the Building the New Economy, points out is, is that the entities, the institutions that do that, um, sort of a way to really induce liquidity into the data market, which means you can now price data, without sharing personal data. So you have this sort of arrangement of people, of institutions, which answer questions for each other for a price, and it can be open. And that's called confidential computing. The best versions of this are things like Singapore's Ubin project, which is funded by Temasek, which is uses a blockchain, a distributed ledger, but it's exactly this. It's local data stores, question and answerings, all encrypted in a way that's auditable, incorruptible by anything normal, and gives you the ability to have uniform transaction medium. So we just set up a similar version of this in Switzerland with Swisscom and SwissPost. It's called the Swiss Trust Chain. And of course, China has a version. And the Chinese version will be the thing that powers Belt and Road. Boy! Suddenly, you're going to have these uniform transaction media that don't share data. They share certified, auditable answers about data. And they carry logistics chains, tax data, payment data, etc. And then you begin thinking about all the things that depend on that. And you go, oh my God, that's really different. <laughs> well, what, what, what quote that I liked in your book, it's this notion of agility versus fragility. And, uh, many centralized data stores are very fragile. You've been giving a lot of examples that are financial services and also personal identifiable data for consumers. What about machine-generated data and how does Opal apply to the IoT? Sure. There's two things. So the, the version I just gave you is from a, a corporation or national perspective. But there's also sort of the more technical thing, the IoT, right? And, and in IoT, instead of having a smart home that sends us all of its data someplace, you have a smart home that stores the data and answers questions that it needs to. And now you can permission that in the way you want, and you can audit what questions were asked. And so what it means is, is that there's a lot less data flowing around it's just encrypted streams of questions and answers, 
And so it's inherently much, much, first of all, cheaper, because there's not that in everything. There's not many copies of the data, less attack surface. And it gives you much finer grain control over what's revealed where. The second version of this, though, is from the consumer point of view. And this is one of the things I try to point out, particularly in the book, is you can imagine a chamber of commerce or a local cooperative that offers their members a place to store their data. So they scrape their phone and other, you know, put their credit card stuff in their own personal data store. The, the co-op doesn't own it, just holds it for them. But the co-op uses that data with the consumer's permission to answer questions. So things like, what should we invest in in this community? Are we getting the medical services we need? Are there schools doing as well as other schools? Things that people really care about. And so what it does is, this is the Piketty quote, it puts the power of data in the hands of a local community organization. I see a number of startups beginning to do this with the help of many of the large cooperative alliances. The community gets to decide what's good and what's bad because, you know, it's too complicated for us. And there are thousands of community cooperatives that handle uh, good fractions of a trillion dollars of investment into communities that are underserved. And those communities are going to need data to guide that investment. Sandy, the OPAL framework, as you write about in your book, has a governance and a technology component to it. How do you see the role of the large technology companies in helping to implement a distributed data framework? Well, first of all, it turns out it's not that difficult to do. We at MIT, I run a group that built Kerberos and you know does 85% of all the authentication in the world. And so it's not hard. We have model software. You can take it. It's good. This is what Fidelity and the banks did in the United States. They took that model software and they spun it up. You know, obviously a professional version of it. So it's not that difficult. I've talked to people like Google and Microsoft, and they have some versions of this mm -hmm. already. Oh, yeah. And by the way, the EU uh, has, in their proposed 2021 regulations, specified that this is the way it has to be done. So you're going to see a lot of pressure to do this sort of thing. And it just turns out it's not that hard. So are you seeing these collectives being established in different industry verticals? You know, it's various industries do various things, of course, right? So it's not a completely coherent thing, except for these things like the Swiss thing that we set up, Swiss Trust Chain or Project Ubin or the Chinese, which are uniform across industry. And I described to you how the banks are beginning to do this, right? And I began to see things like this in medicine also. So, for instance, you know, this notion of green cards, I've been vaccinated, okay? Well, you don't want a national database for that. What you want is a query that resolves at the local clinic where you got your vaccination. So, it's a little bit like a credit card. You show the credit card, you know, they say, okay, there's the magic number. There's a handler, that network that routes it to the person that holds the data. They say yay or nay. It comes back, you're good to go. Except now it's medical data. Did you get vaccinated? And you can imagine other things like that that you begin to do. So the, the infrastructure is there and is being driven by things that are critical, timely issues. Like, for instance, the reason I think that the banks and Fidelity did it is, is that they were facing enormous challenges with fraud. 
Sandy, where do you see data sharing and computation going in the next three decades or so? Well, what I expect to see and, and what I am seeing, right, is, is that there'll be these organizations which have this OPAL-like thing where the data stays, it's question and answering mechanism. So you don't have to move the data around. You can audit things. A lot of the big investment firms are seeing it in banking. I expect to see it in medicine in some ways. And uh, as I mentioned, the EU pending regulation asks that data be done this way, that it's questions, not data, and that the person that answers the questions has a fiduciary responsibility to the data owner. And plus, if you ask, well, what are the central bank digital currencies going to look like? That's exactly what they are, right? They're the same sort of architecture where the banks are nodes in the ledger and these encrypted things move back and forth. And it's auditable. One of the other things that's driving it is, you know, the valuation of companies now is majority the data they hold and not the physical assets. But those have never been on the standard audits, have they? You need to know really fairly precisely what sort of data they have and what they're using for it to value the company. Or here's another one. There's all this pressure to have ESG, and the ESG measures are ludicrous. They don't agree with each other. They're gamed. They don't actually do what most people think they would do. They're just talking about internal processes. But using this sort of thing, if you're looking at logistics chains and trade and payments and things like that, you can actually do ESG in a much more verifiable, objective way. Or here's another one. Currently, there's, I forget what the number is, but it's something like $2 trillion a year of tax avoidance in cross-border trade. And all of those governments are looking at that and saying, God, we're broke. And there's hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars of tax revenue we're missing out because all the transactions and the logistics chains are not on an accessible uniform platform. And that begins to make things like the, the Singapore Yuban or the Swiss trust chain look very attractive. You know, it would pay for itself in the first hour. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and just coming back to your ESG point, there's some interesting initiatives to drive greater sharing of data to provide transparency around the ESG metrics. You know, there was the quote of a while ago that data is the new oil, but un yeah. unlike oil, not all data is created equal. And so you know, transforming data into value is, is a bit more challenging. But companies that are able to leverage data to generate value are certainly yeah. becoming much more prevalent. Well, the fact that the majority of valuation in companies is data tells you basically everything you need to know about that. The thing about data is, is that it's context specific, so it's not fungible. It does evaporate over time. So it's not like money and it's not like oil. Okay. And ownership for it is more like land than it is like money. So the institutions and the regulations around it have to be different. It has to work differently. But the ways of auditing and holding and trading don't have to be all that different. For instance, we don't move gold around anymore. I guess we do some, but you know, we, there's many things like this we don't move around. We just trade digital attestations. You have this 
attestation training to be able to amass what you need. You have federated learning to be able to get insights without moving the data. You're safer. You have less liability. You have greater auditability. Governments love you because now you have to pay tax on things. Right? Green people like you because now we can actually see what you're doing. You know, it's got a lot going for it. And I think that those would be the drivers of this change. Well, Benny, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Uh, I look forward to reading the, the book when it's officially published, though I know it's available online. And thank you so much for the time today. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. To learn more about BCG's thinking on the data economy and IoT ecosystems, please visit our website at www.bcg.com and search for Unleashing the Data Economy.